Hi everyone, welcome back to the 21 and Sensory podcast with me, Emily. On today's episode, I have the awesome Jordan Ellis. Jordan describes himself as a T-shaped visual designer, specialising in all things creative in fintech, which is financial technology, in case you weren't aware. (laughs) He is currently working at Anna Money and is working to better life as a neurodivergent in the creative industry. Um, So Jordan, do you want to say hello? Hello, thank you so much for having me on. No worries. Um, Yeah, I think this is going to be a really interesting chat. It's nice to have a fellow designer on. Um, We can definitely nerd out over design stuff. (laughs) Um, So maybe um, we could get a little bit more background on you and maybe any diagnoses that you have or that you're looking to potentially kind of pursue, if that's okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think you kind of nailed it with with the intro. Um, so for, for diagnosis, um, I would kind of describe it as um, self-suspecting and seeking diagnosis. And kind of with that is like a fair bit of um, evidence and, and validation. So, you know, to clarify, I haven't been diagnosed, but um, kind of waiting on going through that journey. Um, but to kind of get up to this point, I suppose, for a bit of context, um, I've struggled through school quite a bit, like kind of from GCSE level right up to higher education. Um, and then at university, I was diagnosed with dyslexia and dyscalculia. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and during my assessment, I was kind of given a bit of an informal recommendation to um, go for an autism assessment. And, and at the time, so this was quite a few years ago now, um, but at the time, I remember not really having a clue about what what that meant um, or what it meant for me. And to be honest, I was a little bit embarrassed. So mm-hmm. uh, I didn't follow anything up and kind of ignored it for years. But more recently um as i've learned more about it uh there's a lot of traits that that um kind of looking back on growing up that kind of retrospectively that i kind of embodied and and even now there's there's things that i can kind of relate to um Mm -hmm. so i feel like it's it's appropriate to go for um for a diagnosis um Mm -hmm. i think the big thing for me was kind of kind of noticed this in uh maybe when i was around 10 so in year six um, I'd moved to like a new school and it kind of felt like everyone around me was kind of in on something they kind of knew um, I don't know the, the way I described it to, to people before is that everyone kind of knew um, the lyrics to a song mm-hmm. and we we were supposed to sing it every day and I had no idea mm-hmm. um, so I yeah it just kind of felt like being out of the loop um, and then going forward to like every new stage of life so uni and and entering the workplace I kind of felt like I should really be more self-aware than those around me um Mm. and really keep in mind how I should be like fitting in to avoid sticking out um and and as I've been you know looking more into um autism I've kind of learned that that's essentially what what masking is yeah gosh it's really interesting to hear like I'll have to let's unpack that a bit so the first kind of time you heard about potentially, you know, you might be autistic, it was at like a dyslexia and dys kind of calculia assessment. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. That's interesting because I feel like, like obviously dyslexia and dyscalculia are very kind of, um, I feel like they can be picked up later in life. I'm also someone that was diagnosed as um, dyslexic at university. Um, so I know the feeling, but I feel like those are more kind of educational things um, that affect your learning but to be told that you might also be autistic like how did they how did they pick up on that in an assessment for something totally different <laughs> yeah so 
at my uni we had like a kind of disabled student center and mm-hmm. that's kind of where I was going to be referred to the actual dyslexia assessment um which was kind of somewhere else but that was kind of the um kind of section of the uni to like dedicated to, to kind of helping um you know like non-neurotypical students or mm-hmm. people with um disabilities and things like that um so that's initially how it came up um as, as some as like an option I could take as well but it wasn't really forced like on me or anything like that but um I kind of always suspected I was dyslexic from um and because my mum's a mum was a teacher um and worked with a lot of um kind of different different uh, students with different um abilities mm-hmm. that she kind of picked up on that as well and that's initially how I kind of started on on this whole journey I guess was was kind of with dyslexia mm-hmm. that's really interesting like it almost kind of like one led to another sort yeah. of thing and I feel like I hear that a lot like if it's like you know parents noticing it or parents going forward to get their children diagnosed and they actually realize that they're autistic like it's quite interesting <laughs> yeah and and the journey I think the the dyslexia journey was a bit of a, a fight because I was trying to get to an assessment um before a level uh, and then for mm. um, for autism, it just seems like a, a much bigger beast of a of a process. So, uh, luckily, uh, as part of my like work package, I get private healthcare, um, which kind of exists as an app on my phone where I can like schedule video calls with a GP or a phone call with a GP. Mm-hmm. Um, so I that's how I'm kind of pursuing my referral, um, just because I've heard like NHS waiting times can be um, incredibly long, and then going like fully private can be really really expensive so um as part of my referral um I had to complete a couple of like online self-assessments so two kind of that I I can remember quite clearly because it's been it's been quite a while now um since I had that initial um GP appointment so it was an autism spectrum test and a cat Q test Mm -hmm. um I don't know if that's if, if if that's a common thing or not but um on the autism spectrum test, I scored 40. And uh, I think when I was reading it, about um, 80% of autistic people score like 32 or higher. So 40 Ooh, was okay. quite like a um, quite a clear indicator. And then the CAT-Q test is all about masking and, and assimilation. Mm-hmm. And I spoke earlier about how I was quite young when I realized I wasn't quite fitting in and I didn't really know why. Um, and in that I had a score of uh, 144 where I think a score of 100 or above indicated kind of autistic traits. Um, Yeah, so I think, uh, you know, if if a GP appointment, particularly now, is really hard to get hold of to kind of start pursuing your journey, um, I think that, like, the CAT-Q and the, like, autism spectrum tests are are good places to start. I remember them being quite long, so they were definitely very, um, very thorough. Mm -hmm. And it also kind of really makes you look, like, back at your younger self and be like, it makes you kind of almost realize some things as well like oh like this this is a thing yeah definitely <laughs> <that> other people did <laughs> yeah definitely i remember i remember once um someone in my class this was kind of like when when um it started to click that i wasn't fitting in someone was said that i walked weird because i didn't swing my arms and i was like i didn't know you had to swing your arms when you walk um or oh. like 
being a birthday party I, I, my parents love a love a home video mm. and there's ones of, of being at like birthday parties when I was really young and they you know sometimes had like a DJ and it was so loud and they were all singing happy birthday to to me and you can see me in the corner of this of this uh home video like hands over my ears because it's too loud for me um and yeah when when you start learning about it things start to kind of fit into place and you're like oh god um yeah this is this is uh becoming clearer to me and clearer to me now Mm -hmm. and it's so interesting like your analogy earlier of you know like not knowing the lyrics like not knowing the song like everything you're saying it's it's like everyone else has the manual to life and we got missed out somehow don't I don't know how but (laughs) and you're just kind of running on like I don't know just assessing and like mimicking other people's behavior or you know like you not knowing that that was how people walked like why would you (laughs) yeah definitely it's kind of like you you miss out on the way to see all these like very implicit unwritten rules mm. um of, of like society or or you know life in general um mm. so it takes a lot of I, I remember just being like so aware of it and it being so exhausting to really like understand you know is this uh like an implicit action is this like a um something someone's doing for for kind of like social um I guess so- socially appropriate reasons to fit in mm-hmm. um and that's kind of like kind of been the story of my life I suppose and and my relationship to autism up until this point mm-hmm. and I just think also like I, I don't know if you found this but like realizing that not everyone else is like struggling the same I know that sounds bad but almost like like I have this like constant internal like monologue that's trying to help me to just try and fit in all the time and I remember at my autism assessment being told like you know that's you know neurotypical people don't have that and I'm like they don't have that like constant, you know, kind of not not voice, but like the constant thinking and thoughts in your head trying to assess everything. Like, I feel like life would be easier without that. I don't know if you have that as well. Wow, no, I, I've never heard of that before. But yeah, that sums me up quite well. I, like <laughs> during like conversations, especially my early job interviews, I was kind of always talking to myself mm-hmm. in, in my head saying like, uh, okay, you've made eye contact for enough, you can look away for a bit yeah. or like nod a bit, you know, now now's a good time to nod and things mm-hmm. like that, you know, see, like look like you're, um, look like you're really engaged in the conversation because before I've been at like kind of jobs before I was a designer, you know, like retail jobs mm-hmm. where I've been called up on on kind of coming across very rude or like I'm not listening when when I've been uh, kind of told to do something. So right. yeah, that makes so much sense now. There you go, it's <laughs> another, another click live. <laughs> another thing that falls into place. Like Absolutely. It's, it's almost like I kind of describe it as almost having like an inner coach. Like it's trying to help you through every scenario, but you you don't you don't necessarily want it all the time. And it is just like constantly sat there in the background so um yeah I don't know if I've made up the kind of inner monologue thing or but if if you get it I'd like to think other you know it's not yeah, just yeah, us I two get <laughs> I get it I get it but it's, it's interesting because this this whole time I think not having um like an official diagnosis gives you like imposter syndrome this whole time like you mm-hmm. know is this really me you know am I actually autistic or is there something else so yeah, yeah it's always it's always a bit bit uncertain mm-hmm. I'm glad you found that kind of almost middle route between going private and waiting on the NHS like you're able to use like the work kind of insurance sort of way of doing things and it's it is quite kind of interesting hearing how different people pursue kind of a diagnosis but the thing is about 
I would say like obviously having imposter syndrome before like I massively had that but I think what I wasn't prepared for was after my assessment still having the imposter syndrome and being like oh now they've said I'm this thing am I this thing like it just never ends (laughs) yeah and sometimes I'm, I'm not sure if um because it's only recently where I've started kind of like communicating it with the people I work with mm-hmm. and kind of work with with my colleagues a little better um mm-hmm. and, and sometimes I feel like you know I, I could be saying this and sure it's gonna work out better mm-hmm. um you know we're, we're gonna work together better but it, sometimes it just feels like I'm lying because I don't have that piece of paper to point to and then yeah. I also think about um you know if if I do get um you know like a a, a diagnosis like what would that even change at this point mm-hmm. um so yeah a lot of a lot of uncertainty mm-hmm. and I think we'll chat about work in a little bit but I think it'd be good to chat about kind of the kind of like education sort of bit so where you kind of mentioned that you found out about being dyslexic at um, university were your university supportive like what course were you on and like how did you get to sort of go into the kind of design industry yeah yeah um yeah my uni was was massively helpful I think um there was like clear kind of support that you could get that were kind of baked into the system rather than kind of these um just quickly put together things so um I actually studied like creative media at uni so I only did coursework um it meant that you know if you were struggling you could ask for a um a deadline extension and you would you'd be kind of viewed more favorably um but I know people that have um kind of like exams were able to have like more time or you know a separate space on campus to to kind of sit that exam and and things like that okay that's good that's nice to hear because I feel like like you've said like if it's not kind of baked in a lot of universities are like oh we need to throw something together (laughs) yeah yeah which um is not ideal um and I think you know every every person is so different like you know something might work for someone but not another person so yeah, exactly. And then I'd always uh, kind of, in terms of like becoming a designer, I'd always kind of been into kind of graphic design um, mm-hmm. or kind of like art in general. Um, you know, I'd always been um, quite creative, I guess. And that, that kind of like took um, a bunch of different routes. I think, first of all, it was probably semi-forced by the fact that I was pretty dreadful at school in, in most other subjects. And I found mm-hmm. it kind of really hard to, to concentrate on those topics um but as soon as I was interested in something that was really easy and it was kind of I guess more difficult to detach from that so yeah at school and at uni I tried lots of different things from like art photography and film um, but I'd always kind of done uh design as like a as like a bit of a hobby mm-hmm. um so yeah I kind of just ultimately settled on that as kind of the the thing that I wanted to do and I think it was probably the thing that I was best at out of all of those kind of creative subjects Mm -hmm. I I really feel that like as soon as like the opportunity to stop doing academic subjects was (laughs) was near I was like great (laughs) yeah absolutely I think I'm really bad at um doing something I'm not good at or Mm -hmm. or kind of the first try and I'm if I'm not like um kind of good at something straight away I get really frustrated by it and it makes me want to kind of drop that thing but I think because I'd always been um, a little bit creative, um, like all through life, it was really mm-hmm. easy for me to pick these things up and kind of understand um, kind of the basic rules around like aesthetics and, and creativity and kind of making things. Mm-hmm. And I feel like 
also like it sounds like you're quite a visual person and I think you know graphic design obviously like lends itself to that thing but also making you know information more clear and more easy to understand I feel like is a natural thing that autistic people want to do is you know try to communicate clearly and try to um I don't know just I feel like a lot of us are kind of visual learners (laughs) yeah that's a good way of putting it yeah 100% agree so after university what did you kind of think workplace wise had you done kind of any internships before or were you pretty new to kind of like oh I'm out of university I need a design job kind of thing luckily for me I'd kind of always worked um from (laughs) kind of when I was taking my GCSEs I mean this was just retail but also (laughs) done quite a bit of work experience so um I worked um my first kind of experience with design was at a um an agency who had clients like Diageo um who who are a drinks company they do like Smirnoff um and things like Mm -hmm. that so I did have an experience with um what that environment was like and kind of I think I spent one or two weeks so it was a good amount of time to understand um Mm -hmm. the way that those kind of offices operated I suppose which which you know was really comfortable for me um and then After uni, I went to um, like a digital marketing agency near where I lived, and mm-hmm. that was kind of the same. Um, but what I quickly understood that that um, I wasn't very good at communicating, so I could do the design work. I had the technical skills, but I didn't have the soft skills. Yeah. Um, and yeah, as soon as I kind of realized that, that was kind of the thing I really had to had to um, focus on. Uh, and then straight after my um, agency job I went to work for a company um called Wise and that was kind of the start of my like fintech career and I found that I really understood kind of finance and things like that and I was really interested in in those sorts of things and making really complex kind of um financial ideas really simple and Mm -hmm. then making it um less intimidating through branding Mm -hmm. okay that's really interesting like I feel like I've also been on the same journey interestingly like also having come out of university and worked at an agency and been like oh I'm out of my depth and then gone in-house like do you also prefer like working in-house yeah it's I think taking um a brand as like this living kind of breathing ever-evolving thing and working with it and mm. kind of guiding it to evolve in the right direction um is something that, that I really enjoy and that's why I don't really I, I normally work in-house roles without going to um agencies because I don't like the idea of kind of you know you spend all this time creating something and it's basically to kind of dump it on the client's desk and cash a check and leave so yeah I really like kind of working with something through like through a, a couple of years mm-hmm. and it's just kind of nice to feel like you kind of own the brand and you're almost like a bit of a brand champion whereas in an agency I just felt like I was just moving a logo like someone else's logo around yeah. like <laughs> yeah it's like why are you paying me to do this like <laughs> yeah 100% um and you in in the intro you you talked about um, me kind of self-describing myself as a, a t-shaped designer and I think mm-hmm. um, in terms of like working up to where I am now um, I think what makes me a good designer is um, what I'd call holistic design thinking so uh, I think I'm really good at seeing how different parts of a brand kind of add up to a whole and t-shape essentially means uh, t-shaped essentially means um, I can do and have done quite a lot of different uh, mediums within design um, but I specialize in one so mm-hmm. I can kind of animate I can edit kind of video art direct photo shoot um, design interfaces or 
create design systems, websites, apps, things like that. But my main thing is is kind of visual identities. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so so I think um, without going into the technicalities too much, each style of say, you know, for example, something quite common, a font has this kind of feeling to it, you know, whether that's like in terms of its formality or the tone that you'd associate it, mm-hmm. associate with it. Um, and when building a brand, you need kind of the right styles and the the right kind of um, cohesive kind of brand to to work well with what your company or your your brand wants. So you wouldn't use a, a font you'd see in the Financial Times to to um, to put on the box of your your cereal brand aimed at four year olds. So yeah. <laughs> that's quite an obvious one, but it gets quite um, quite specific and granular. I think when you're mm-hmm. when you're really working with a brand for a long time. I feel like it's almost like um, I don't know if you've heard of like synthesia, where people like um, they can like hear color. I think it is. Oh wow! It's, I I think it's synthesia. It's a really hard word to say, but it almost feels like maybe autistic graphic designers, such as ourselves, might almost have that in terms of like with graphic design, like when you know it feels right and you know it looks right and like. I don't know. I don't know if I'm if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it makes <laughs> sense. I think one of the things you you probably realise quite quickly is people think um, in different ways, and and people are kind of creative in different ways. Whether mm-hmm. that's you know really creative or not at all. And one of the challenges for a designer, especially if you're kind of really creatively minded, is how you um, communicate and and how you kind of talk about ideas and how something doesn't quite quite work. Um, one of the big things is is that you hear a lot in design is kind of you know make it pop and that's um, when something doesn't really speak to someone mm-hmm. that's trying to um, tease out why they're saying that and yeah sometimes it's even if it's you know completely subjective or it's kind of based in fact so mm-hmm. um, yeah sometimes there's there's a big kind of internal fight between you just doing the work and you having kind of autonomy over your work and and you know being like oh I'm the I'm the subject matter expert and, and trying to communicate that with uh, not without necessarily offending someone yeah I find like it's really hard because you do really have to compromise and I don't think university really teaches you how to kind of like manage stakeholders or shareholders or clients and stuff like yeah it's really hard to be like but you employed me I'm the expert like yeah. and for them to weigh in and be like yeah it needs to pop more it's like well that's that's really vague <laughs> yeah exactly exactly and I think that's probably going back to kind of agency versus in-house is why I prefer mm. in-house because you can kind of fight for your autonomy a bit more when uh you know when you're when you're an agency you're kind of just trying to get your work signed off by your client and yeah. doing what makes them happy even if you know it's not quite the right thing for uh, who they're targeting that piece of work at, you know, who their who their customer is. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's amazing that, um, you know, you you explaining about being like a T shaped designer that that you do like dabble in so many things because I feel like a lot of kind of job descriptions for designers nowadays, like I'm always like they they ju- they just want you to do everything. They want you to code. They want you to animate. They want you to do motion design and graphic design. And I'm always like. But those are all like separate degrees in them, like in themselves kind of thing. Um, yeah. So have you kind of sort of self-taught and kind of added these like additions onto your onto yourself almost? Yeah, definitely. And I think being in an agency that was really kind of fast moving as, as kind of my first job, you know, I was um, 
forced to kind of understand kind of basic web code thank, thank god I don't code because I found it really difficult but mm-hmm. you know I taught myself to um you know animate and um you know design for, for different mediums so I you know I'd never designed a website before I went to agency it was purely kind of branding that I'd worked on mm-hmm. and um you know I'd never been paid to do it either um so yeah it, it's interesting because I think there are designers who like to be able to work on lots of different things and mm-hmm. for me I think it's valuable um especially when you're kind of in like a more leadership position and running teams is that you're able to understand why and when something feels off Mm -hmm. and know the kind of technicalities behind it um so like animation is a big one and sound is a big one I think the human like eye and the human ear is really good at picking up on things like that Mm -hmm. and if um I picked up on it but hadn't trained myself in these like mediums I wouldn't be able to kind of vocalize why why a thing was wrong um Mm -hmm. to, to one of my colleagues so yeah I think it's really important um but then I think it's also really important in your in your teams to have have specialists because because I can animate but I'm not a great animator um Mm -hmm. whereas you know there are people who do that for a living and it it, and it is its own specialism with all the kind of like really in-depth technical knowledge that goes with it Mm -hmm. yeah no I understand that like I feel like that about video editing like I can do it but there's people that have (laughs) you know got like 15 20 years like experience who would probably do it very you know very well yeah Um, exactly yeah but I do think it does kind of like what do people say like adds a string to your bow in terms of being able to do a bit of everything because you can wear kind of many hats which I think is it can be quite helpful but um I'd be interested to know like how how do you feel about like we're talking about work but how do you feel about like the environment of a workplace so have you worked in open plan offices or have you been kind of hybrid or remote like how do you find an environment affects you yeah, so my first kind of job in fintech was at quite a, they're, they're quite a big company now, um, and they had obviously that they had money to kind of throw at things. So we're really fortunate to have like a quiet working space, lots of different breakout rooms, um, and the design team was quite big. But we had this kind of little nook in the office, which was like a really comfortable, nice place to work. It was an open office, but it was had a lot of kind of um, pillars and dividers that kind of made it uh, feel broken up into all these spaces. Um, yeah and I I think that the quiet working space was was a really good um, kind of place for me to go if I needed kind of that that environment Mm -hmm. Um, the company I work in now is a little smaller um, but I'm fortunate enough I think to work in an industry where uh, employees have to keep competitive when it comes to hiring and Mm -hmm. off the back of like the pandemic and and kind of proving that remote work is is you know a viable option I basically now can work wherever I, I can get wi-fi so usually this means I, I work from home um, basically as much as I like. Um, but yeah, the office um, environment isn't always ideal for me, especially in an open plan setting, because um, I like to have a very like dedicated desk. Yeah, as we said, like quiet work, quiet working spaces and a booth to kind of hide away and, and take meetings or, or focused work. Um, and I think uh, sometimes the the kind of I suppose the the business comes before the individual and Mm -hmm. I'm just one person with a very specific set of needs and if your company doesn't have the kind of capital to accommodate um it can be you know very difficult to push for something like that which is why you can kind of um rely on 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 remote working to set up the space at home how you need how you need it Mm -hmm. um 
and I suppose then you know I have a lot of tools to kind of accommodate my again specific set of needs um, especially when I'm kind of not really feeling it so um, when I'm in the office I can I take a pair of like noise cancelling headphones Mm -hmm. and I find train travel quite overwhelming especially when it's loud so I'll tend to travel kind of outside of rush hour so I go in very early and I leave a little early too and then when I'm on the train I also wear um, earplugs so I have kind of devices to um, help me cope and help me adapt Mm -hmm. Um, because I I think a big thing about kind of working on it and and being self-aware about your needs and and how they are quite you know niche is accepting that the world isn't really set up for the the way that I need it to work for me Um, and uh, it's being aware about what I can do to kind of minimize um any kind of disruption to my to myself and Mm. and kind of fit in and and cope and adapt I think I mean it all sounds like you've kind of managed to work these things out for yourself which is a huge kind of feat in itself like how like getting to understand these things about you can be really kind of um tricky but it's interesting what you're saying about the kind of hiding not hiding away in a booth but like needing that kind of like separate area to work and I feel like a lot of employers don't understand that like you know it's great to be in an open plan office and you know like sat collaborating but realistically that looks like you being sat really near a very chatty like sales team for example (laughs) you know they have you know their work is important but don't sit me near them because they're just going to talk constantly and I feel like you might get this like if you need to animate something or video edit or audio edit you need utter silence like (laughs) yeah definitely so I do I do kind of I feel like it's going the right way in terms of employment and understanding like neurodiversity but I still feel like it's got a bit of a way to go but remote working helps (laughs) 100% yeah I think there are some things that need to change when it comes to kind of neurodiversity and employment Mm. Um, you know as much as much as I say you know my my needs are very niche compared to probably the the rest of the the company I work for um, I think there are definitely steps that companies can take and Mm. I think it's being aware that you um, that there are things that are actually very easy to do um, so I think the big thing, um, especially in creative teams, is recognizing that people work differently. So as mm. long as the outcome is is kind of high quality and and is the same, I think the ways of working should be tailored to the the needs of what the team needs, as mm. opposed to kind of this performance of how we think creatives should work. Um, and I think inclusive ways of working in all their forms should kind of be baked right into uh, everything right from the hiring stage you know, asking if someone needs reasonable adjustments and making sure that you're educated and set up to provide those. Mm-hmm. Um, for me personally, a handbook is a really great place to start. Um, you know, you can use this to introduce things like company-wide rituals and, and company culture, mm-hmm. uh, a map of your office, um, yes, yeah. how to kind of get into the building on your first day and where to get lunch, which which those two are really big for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a, just ironing out those um, those points of uncertainty it's really like key to, to a smooth kind of transition for anyone, um, like neurodiverse or not. Um, mm-hmm. You know, periods of, of transition can be really uneasy and there's something that I struggle a lot with. Um, mm-hmm. So I think smoothing those over just gives you a few less things to worry about. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when, when things aren't new, uh, it's more about, I suppose, smoothing the, the friction between people who think in different ways, like, like kind of like how we, we touched on earlier. Um, and, and a user manual I've heard is a really good way to, to help with this. So it's kind of like a, a handbook on how to work with people. So mm-hmm. it includes things like um, 
you know, active working times, the, the best environment for me, uh, the best ways to communicate with me, um, you know, like how I like to receive feedback, how I mm-hmm. learn and understand things best um, and things that drain and things that boost my energy. And then, mm-hmm. you know, things I, I can't function without, you know, things like that. So I think ultimately having an inclusive working culture um, and inclusive working environment attracts a lot of different people. Um, and I think, you know, particularly in, in design, and solving design problems for, for users, that's a really powerful thing because you've got all these people who feel accommodated that can kind of freely give their um, opinions. So, you, you know, you get people uh, with uh, like a diverse background to kind of come to a problem to make sure that you're solving it in, in the best way mm-hmm. rather than just kind of, you know, hiring for um, what's already working. So you just end yeah. up with that kind of like same insight and that's that same kind of viewpoint and mindset Mm -hmm. and just like to bring up something you mentioned like whether you're neurodiverse or not like these things are helpful like the user handbook is a brilliant idea because everyone kind of I mean it almost need it from like the start of education because everyone learns differently but also everyone works differently and just knowing when someone's around and online and you're not going to bother them kind of thing just like from that sort of perspective it would be like really helpful um but kind of like you say like it does I think a lot of companies don't realize like how much you know from the initial like newness of onboarding like almost wanting a video tour of how to like get into the place um to then settling in and you know needing you know stuff to sort of change a little bit and things it's almost like maybe this sort of handbook kind of grows with you <laughs> yeah definitely one, one of the things I really liked at, um, one of my previous jobs is um, we were using slack which is kind of like a internal messaging system mm-hmm. and they had a channel just called who should I ask so you ask your question and then the people in that channel will direct you to the right you know person so if you need a new piece of equipment they'll point you to IT, things like that. So you, oh, okay. you kind of end up talking to the right person without having to, I don't know, go to your manager and have this kind of very long um, route to get to to get to what you want. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's just things like that to make, to see kind of pain points internally, you know, in your business and, and kind of solve for them. Mm-hmm. And to just acknowledge that like, no question is a stupid question. Like, Absolutely, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like I wish like more companies had that because it can be terrifying to know who to <laughs> contact. Yeah, exactly. Um, but um, I read your article about kind of being neurodiverse and workplaces and things like that. And I know that you mentioned as well, like apart from kind of quiet working areas, things like just like consistently having an allocated desk where, like space. Um, I don't know how you feel about hot desking, but I feel like, things like that like just having an allocated desk space every time would be beneficial to everyone not just <laughs> yeah yeah I think that's a that's kind of a difficult one now um you know I think the biggest expenditure for a business after kind of headcount and hiring you know people mm. is an office space and I think if you have an office space that's big enough to have everyone in at the same time that's going to be quite expensive so mm-hmm. I, I think you know in that kind of way of having a smaller office where kind of people need to go in if they need to, you know, take a meeting in person. Um, but most of the time people are remote working. You're going to struggle to get, you know, uh, a, a desk to yourself. But mm-hmm. um, so so for every employee anyway. But I think for, for someone who has like asked for something like that, 
I think that's a reasonable adjustment to get. And that's, that's a big one for me. Um, I think, I think having that consistency is, is really big. And that's something that makes me feel kind of more comfortable to go into the office, you know, once a week. Mm-hmm. Um, cause often you find, especially with hot desking that there's just like clutter on all the desks, yeah. um, that that's not really owned by anyone. And so it kind of feels, um, you know, like cluttered to go in and, and sit and work at a desk that's not familiar and, and not mm-hmm. full of like the things that you've bought in, I suppose. Yeah. It kind of feels like you're sitting at someone else's desk, which is exactly what you're doing basically. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely um, resonate with that. And I, I remember I worked at a company once that had like a booking system for booking like hot desks. And I worked out with my team like what day, like a week or every two weeks they were going to go in. And then I block booked the same desk <laughs> for about six months in advance. Wow, I was that's dedication. like, I want the same desk. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I agree with you. That's a, that's a good way to do it. Yeah, um, I was like, I want the desk by the window and like, like right in the corner. Like I was like, prime, <laughs> just block book this desk. Yeah, People yeah. must have looked ahead and been like, why is she like going so far ahead? But I was like, this is really important to me. Yeah, yeah. And it's important to me too. And I think I'd probably look for the same sort of desk. Yeah, just one that's in a kind of corner, but near some light. But like, it was just like the perfect, the perfect desk. <laughs> yeah, I completely agree. Mm-hmm. Um. So now that we've touched on kind of being um, neurodiverse and in employment, like how have you found, um, obviously I know that like at the moment you're like self-identifying as autistic, but have you kind of been open with companies? This is always something that I'm interested to kind of um, ask about and something I've struggled with is whether to be open or not. And if, you know, are you someone that would worry like with the opinion kind of change on you sort of thing so yeah I'd like to get your perspective on it (laughs) yeah really interesting um yeah I've I've kind of started because you know if 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 I end up getting kind of diagnosed or not it's still kind of the ideal way that I would um want to work and I think you know just being able to point to um the autism spectrum is a really good way to kind of boil that down into something quick but I think an education piece is you know really important a lot of people just don't understand um I remember the first time I was kind of open with a manager and uh, that I had and said you know you know I think I might be autistic um it was the classic uh you know you, you don't really look autistic um oh. and and then obviously later I found out that that's kind of a bit of a a joke in in the community I suppose mm. um and you know it's it's been it's been difficult to try and like uh open up about it I think you know again purely because people don't really understand um I had a uh, the the job I had before um now um I only really worked my probation and I was quite open with the recruiter um about you know suspecting I might be autistic but it never actually got relayed to my manager um and I think there was this realization essentially when I was being let go um that I didn't um fit in and that was kind of the kind of secondary reason as to why they weren't going to continue my employment after my probation um, okay. The first one being that they literally had no work for me, which was fair enough. But um, yeah, they did. They did kind of touch on the fact that, um, you know, they just alluded to it. They weren't it wasn't very on the nose. But I kind of knew that that's what they meant. Um, mm, okay. and, and for me, I would say, you know, if I had someone who wasn't, you know, fitting in, that's a really like powerful viewpoint to have. So mm. I was a little bit um, 
uh, kind of unnerved by it because I think there's a you know you can always tell not not right away I think it takes a while to be in a position um, at work to realize if someone's being genuine about their diversity and inclusion policies yeah or yeah. if it's just a box ticking exercise mm-hmm. and they've just got very kind of surface level um, very visual identifiers of diversity um, mm-hmm. so so yeah I think there's a there's a big difference um, and it's just kind of a bit annoying that the only way to understand if it is really actually baked into the company culture is just by working there for a little while Mm -hmm. it's hard isn't it because you almost want to like test it like I remember starting work somewhere and there being like a slack channel for like autistic like employees and I was like oh amazing like they kind of advertise that they have these like you know um groups kind of um on their HR page but it's only when I started working there I realized that no one had posted in this group for like a year and a half and I was like, oh, <laughs> like I was so excited to be like part of a kind of, you know, conversation and ask people like how they're managing. But it was such a small group and it was, you know, a kind of dead Slack channel. And it was like, oh, so you never really know until you're somewhere, like you said, like until you've kind of worked somewhere and kind of sussed out what their kind of policies are almost, which definitely sounds terrible. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a really <laughs> difficult way to kind of. I suppose get to the bottom of things and find out the truth but um mm. I suppose in the hiring stage they're trying to sell to you as much as you're trying to sell yourself to them yeah. so of course they're going to kind of say what 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 the best thing is mm-hmm. and how do you think being autistic potentially um affects or kind of influences your work you know alongside being dyslexic and dyscalculic I think that's how you say it <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, as as I mentioned before, it's it's about seeing kind of different parts of a brand and contributing to the whole, mm-hmm. um, and so I think kind of that's kind of what I'm what I'm best at. But also, I would say I'm really good at asking why and I'm being mm-hmm. quite critical about things. Um, I've worked on a project before that was very influenced by Spotify Wrapped, um, okay. and you know, music and and finance are two very different things. People really care about music. They um, you know, they, they kind of embody it as part of their identity, whereas uh, finance and, and personal finance and things like that is is very dull in comparison. Mm. Um, so I think, you know, we, we ended up launching this campaign anyway, but it was positioned very differently. So it was less about kind of, here's how you, here's how our customers have spent over the last year and more about um, how much money you've saved by using the service, um, to put it really broadly. So I think okay. just before, just because one brand does um, something a certain way doesn't mean that it's right for for you know where you are right now, and mm-hmm. I think that's something I can I can be quite good at because you know I found that when people have been working in a particular company for a while, um, you can really bury your head in 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 the sand and and think that people care more about your product than than they do. Yeah. Um, and I think that's especially true with with finance. You know, it, it's boring, and a lot of times it will be like quite admin um mm-hmm. yeah and, and um something I've also found um is that during like the briefing stage of a, of a project uh I can get to a few kind of clear images in my mind of how something can look or mm-hmm. you know different directions something can go in a, a project can go in um so yeah often I, I think uh that stage can be really quick for me and I can get something out for for a stakeholder quite quickly Mm-hmm. um 
But then I, I, one of the kind of drawbacks I've noticed is that I really struggle to make assumptions about what people mean. Um, and this can be really difficult uh, working with people who aren't necessarily creatively minded and yeah. might struggle to describe exactly what they need. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think probably the differences of a neurotypical designer would be able to make some assumptions or fill in some gaps that might yeah. be really obvious. Um, mm-hmm. But for me, I have to spend quite a while, you know, asking questions, getting clarification and, and kind of getting to the bottom of the project requirements. Mm-hmm. So the way I like to do it um, is to have kind of a briefing form that I can read through. And then after that, and after I've gotten some context to go into a kickoff meeting and kind of have that um, initial chat with the stakeholder. Mm-hmm. Um, and then other ways of working. I think I've, I've found it really useful for myself to, to be really organized and using tools that are available to do that. So um, one of the things that I find really useful is a, a Kanban board, um, which is essentially just a table with tickets in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the table is made up of columns and each column has the name of the stage in the design process. So that this could be like, you know, awaiting a brief right up to kind of handed off. And the tickets in the table contain all the information I need. And I can add things like, um, you know, tags. So I know what the genre of the project is, if it's like a website or if it's, mm-hmm. you know, like uh, something for social media, things like that. And then you can kind of see how these tickets move through the process, you know, mm-hmm. back backwards and forwards. And you can add kind of a running um, dialogue of, of all the discussions that you've had, the context, the documentation. Um and it's a really good way of, of keeping everything organized. So I think that's quite core to um, kind of how I work and, and recognizing the things that I'm bad at and kind of compensating for that. Mm-hmm. Out of interest, do you use, like I've used like Jira and Notion to like make Kanban boards. Do you use something similar? Yeah, yeah. So at the moment I'm using one called Flowfast, but that's only because the um, company I work for use it. But I'm a big mm-hmm. fan of Jira. I like that you can kind of it's yeah. like a internal brain for the company so you can see all the discussions that have been had and all the documentation mm-hmm. and you can link it um yeah another another ones if if uh it's useful are, are things like um monday.com i know is quite a big one asana yeah um so yeah asana monday.com um yeah jira they're all they're all, they all good ones so use. such weird names <laughs> they do they do i think it's a requirement of, of software like that to yeah. have a little bit of a strange name <laughs> it is it is nice though because I feel like with a board like that it is like visual and you can see how stuff is progressing like you can see like oh I've got like a backlog of <laughs> stuff and yeah. but also you can see all the stuff you've done and there is like that sense of achievement of there's nothing better than moving something from in progress to done <laughs> absolutely and I think it's also really good to sh- kind of show different stakeholders what you've got going on and what your current yeah. priorities are yeah um because i think a lot of the time a stakeholder won't really understand the workload that you've got because you're obviously taking briefs from all these different parts of the business so to have mm-hmm. something that's very kind of transparent is a really good way to help you prioritize your work and the way i usually do that is kind of what's best for the customer first mm-hmm. and after that it's what's best for the business so that's kind of how how you know, it's, it's really hard to argue with 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 that yeah. when you kind of rationalize it in, in such a simple way. And also just like trying to say, like, I understand it's urgent, but you almost want to say like everyone comes to me and it's urgent. Like... Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. That's a very common, a very common uh, sentiment, you know, mm-hmm. deadlines that don't really need to be there. Things like that. Yeah, it was like the deadline was like, you know, technically like the day before, but I'm coming to you with it today. It's like, well, 
okay yeah <laughs> didn't have much of a chance did I <laughs> yeah exactly and I think yeah. I think as a designer um in in general you know neurotypical or not I think um having that space to really explore the and and um solve for the the best option but also just to have the space to be really creative and do mm-hmm. something that might not work um you know that it might better your understanding or give you some new ideas so I think as a as a baked in way of working it's really important to maybe just respect that that if you've got a creative job it's really difficult to be creative in a nine to five five days a week space yeah um, massively yeah and so so accommodating that little bit of kind of extra time um just really really helps with you know let the ideas flow mm-hmm. yeah having that that just space to think because like you said like some days you'll sit down and you'll be like I have got no ideas <laughs> yeah <laughs> and you're completely. like I cannot I can't just switch this on and I think that's what people don't appreciate about like you know just working in the creative industry is that you're constantly expected to be coming up with like these amazing new ideas but some of the time it's just like oh, I don't know <laughs> absolutely and probably only 20% of my good ideas I get when I'm sitting at my desk most of the time it's it's you know outside of work hours or outside of the kind of office setting you know walking the dog or you know you're on holiday and quickly you quickly note something down because it's a it's a good idea Mm -hmm. I mean you're right in that I almost feel like it's stifling to be sat in front of a laptop or a monitor or whatever and try trying to desperately think of things when actually removing yourself and coming back fresh is yep. is sometimes way better <laughs> yeah I think for for you know a designer or you know even a copywriter um staring at that kind of blank page or a blank artboard is can be so daunting so oh, to yes. get away from that is is always really good yeah and it's interesting because I asked you um like the question initially was like how does being autistic affect your work and you immediately told me all the positives and I think that's it's really interesting and it's also you know kind of kudos to you that you know what you're good at and you know what you know in a work environment are your like positives and what makes you a good employee and that okay yeah I think the word you used was like drawbacks like you know there are these little things like you know communication and like social side of things that are really tricky but just you knowing what you're good at and you saying that first and being like I'm good at this this and this like I think that's really important and I think that's what employers should really um appreciate that Definitely. we do we do bring a lot like. yeah 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 it's it's just it's just kind of a different way of seeing the world is, is how I usually describe it and, and kind of coming at something from from a different angle um mm-hmm. but I think that kind of you know goes for everyone we're all kind of um better and worse at different parts of our jobs and I think if you've got five designers in a room why would you want them all to be the same? You'd want their kind of skills yeah. and weaknesses to complement each other so mm-hmm. that you can kind of learn from each other and uh, kind of be uh, kind of like a stronger team for it and a, mm-hmm. and a team that can tackle more um, kind of user problems and, and more more design problems. So I always love to ask people about their hobbies and, you know, potentially any kind of special interests they may or may not have. Um I can't not ask you about your dog because you have a dog and I'm a dog person. So maybe we could start with um, Juno, your dog, and yeah. then talk about <laughs> any other interests you have. Yeah, I also have a I also have a cat, um, and and they get on very well. Um, yeah, so Juno is like a fox red golden retriever, kind of like the color of, I guess I'm trying to I'm kind of trying to tailor this to a podcast. Yeah, it's kind of the color <laughs> of like dark honey or or maybe like autumny leaves. Oh, so like cute. a bronzy gingery 
color. Mm-hmm. He comes to the office with me. Um, he's, he's a very classic dog, likes fetch and sticks at toys shaped like ducks. Excellent. Um, <laughs> and I like that you can take him to the office as well. Like there's something about office dogs I love. Yeah, definitely. And, and he really loves coming into the office. Sometimes he gets a bit over overexcited and he can <laughs> he can howl, uh, which I'm not sure is is what golden retrievers should really do. But oh. he, you know, he's very good at howling. Um, Interesting. <laughs> and and for hobbies, um, I've I've kind of discovered that um, I tend to really fixate on on my hobbies, and mm-hmm. those hobbies usually have a really steep learning curve um, to master the things I'm interested in it whether it's like the, the science behind it and or kind of mastering some sort of technique. Um, yeah, and, and sometimes I can fixate really intensely on something for a short amount of time and it kind of fades into the background for a while until you get the bug again. Yeah. And that for me was kind of personal finance. I, I don't know why, it's such a boring topic really, but I really kind of went down the rabbit hole in it um, quite intensely. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, it turns out to be an incredibly useful thing to be able to dedicate a lot of time to learning about. Um, yeah I mean if it's in the industry as well that you're yeah, <laughs> working yeah, in <laughs> yeah I think that's probably why I've stayed in the niche mm-hmm. um but now it's kind of taken a bit of a backseat for the last few years um and now I've been really into c- coffee um and mm-hmm. like the science behind it and all the kind of variables that kind of perfect your recipe mm-hmm. um but my big passion at the moment is is like bonsai um because I really I really love being creative and I really love trees so it's kind of a perfect outlet for me Nice. Um, and it's really kind of complex uh, to understand, but it kind of boils down to like the science of, of kind of looking after um, a plant. Um, and it has these very kind of core design principles that you can understand and then try and break once you've kind of mastered those. Mm-hmm. So it's like trying to replicate how ancient trees look in the wild and kind of bring them down into like a miniature form. Um, so I have two kind of trees at the moment, um, a, a juniper and a maple so the maple's got to be my favorite it, if you think about the f- the leaf on the canadian flag the leaves kind oh, of okay. look like that and then it drops them in the it drops its leaves in the winter and then you kind okay. of got this very nice kind of um umbrella shape to it oh, wow. um so yeah those are those are my kind of coffee and coffee and bonsai trees are my two big things at the moment and they that have been for a, for a little while because <laughs> i know that you can kind of you can almost like weave and like grow them very like artistically as well can't you yeah definitely because of because uh you know you want a young tree that's maybe 30 years old to look like a tree that's 100 years old so there's, a, right. there's quite a um intricate level of uh trying to achieve that and a lot of kind of balance that you need to bring to like the tree's health um and kind of give it what it needs and make sure that it's thriving so that it can grow in a way that kind of replicates a really really old tree okay gosh there's a lot of like behind both those kind of interests there's a lot of like science and you know being quite like methodical about it but I can see how that you know that's something that you're really passionate about yeah 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 I could I could go on but it's such a niche like I often find that the things I'm really <laughs> into are so niche that they're quite I suppose unappetizing for someone to sit and, and listen I to. <laughs> I'm I'm always keen to hear about um, coffee and trees. Yeah, yeah, but I think the reason I like it is that every single part of it is all about the way it looks and the aesthetics. Like right from how you kind of wire the branches and yeah. how the wire sits on the branches to you know the space that they're displayed in. And mm-hmm. I really like the kind of um, that kind of ethos of of having you know I think. In, in my life, it's more about surrounding my thing, my myself with quite nice things, mm-hmm. um, and you know the way they look. I think being a designer, part of it is that you can't switch off. Oh, you know, absolutely. <laughs> you're always like, why do they? I, I mean, you know, 
I'm sitting on a desk with a an Apple Magic Mouse, and you have to put it on its back so it's unusable oh. to charge it. And you just think, <laughs> how did this happen? Or you know, you look at like a, I don't know, like a a packet of, of food, and you think, you know, why have they chosen this direction? It's just not that aesthetically pleasing. Mm-hmm. And also, like the amount of memes I've seen about that mouse, like it's Absolutely. terrible design. <laughs> exactly. I don't know for for a company that's so design oriented. Orientated. Don't know how that got through terrible terrible um yeah I'm with you on the whole not being able to switch off like I feel like I get it a lot with like um like road signs and other like si- like shop signage I'm just like yes. ooh, I like that lettering yeah why are they used papyrus <laughs> yeah <laughs> I'm the same taking photos of yeah. signs and things um. often if, if I go out and I, I'm like that's that font um whoever I'm with is yes. like I don't believe you you can't just know that by looking at it do you do that with menus as well? Hundred percent, hundred percent. It's or, like, oh. or a point I'll be like, I'll be like, oh, look at that. I don't know, road sign. You can see the curtains off or something like that. Yeah. Oh God, the amount of terrible spacing between letters yeah. that's out there. It's almost a bit of a curse because once you're kind of put onto it, you'll never be able to switch switch that off. Yeah. Can Can you imagine? There's people out there that don't notice these things. <laughs> yeah, and there's people out there that don't care. <laughs> yeah. Also that. <laughs> um, we went massively on the side there, but it was a good one. Um, so yeah, I think that was everything that we wanted to chat about today. Um, thank you so much, Jordan, for coming on. Thank you. Um, really, it's been really interesting to hear about um, your kind of diagnosis journey and the one that you're kind of still on as well. So um, it'll be really interesting to kind of stay in touch and like see how you manage through the diagnosis process. Yeah, definitely. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for coming on. Wonderful. Bye-bye.